You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My, a bi-weekly healthcare podcast brought to you by the Healthcare Group of Kroll & Mooring. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nanabuddy, and today we will be discussing recent guidance issued by the FDA addressing health-related software applications with Jody Daniel and Shina Vinayak. Jody and Shina, thanks so much for being in the studio with us today. We've heard about guidance that's been issued by the FDA to govern health-related software applications. And we wanted to understand a little bit about what that is and where that fits into the FDA's regulatory regime. So thank you so much for having us here today. The FDA has been undergoing a series of policy activities to enable innovation in the healthcare space. And they have a digital health plan that they have been implementing to promote innovation while also protecting safety. So the most recent guidance documents that have come out are focused on implementation of that digital health plan and providing clarity for technology developers that are in the digital health space to understand what is being regulated by FDA and where the FDA is exercising some discretion with respect to its regulations. And speaking of how the FDA gets involved here, in my simple mind, the FDA regulates food and drugs, and this is really neither of those things. So what's the source of the authority and what does FDA do in this space? So FDA does regulate food and drugs, but they also regulate devices and biologics. Under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, there is a definition of medical device that explains what FDA's authority is with respect to regulation of those technologies, and it is very broad. So when the government started to push for the adoption of electronic health records, there was a question about whether or not the electronic health records were, in fact, devices under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. At the time I was in government and the determination was that yes, they did meet the definition of a device and therefore were subject to FDA authority. And there was some question about whether or not that was the right answer. And my understanding is that determination might have been changed by the 21st Century Cures Act. Is that right? That's correct. So as I was saying about the concerns as to whether certain types of technologies would be subject to FDA's authority and whether or not that was appropriate, there was a lot of discussion about software as a medical device and whether there were certain kinds of digital health software that maybe shouldn't be within the definition of device and shouldn't be within FDA's authority. So under the 21st Century Cures Act, Congress included a provision that carved out certain kinds of software from FDA's authority, basically limiting FDA's authority to regulate certain types of software. So what the guidance documents that we are just seeing now are trying to interpret what is meant by some of that carve-out as well as to define FDA's authority with respect to software that is still within their scope of authority under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and how they're looking at the different kinds of technologies in the digital health space. So my understanding is that the guidance recently issued by the FDA includes four final guidance documents, as well as one draft guidance document. Just to set the stage here, can we discuss the typical process for the FDA to finalize a guidance document? So the FDA does a couple of things. They have, obviously, their statutory authority, and they have regulations interpreting their statutes. What they tend to do is issue a lot of guidance that provides clarity to industry about how they are interpreting their regulations and how their regulations may apply to certain kinds of technologies. So 
typically the process is, is they'll hear a lot from industry folks about areas of confusion or areas where the FDA might want to take a position on a particular matter with respect to their regulatory authority, and they'll put out draft guidance and then ask for comment on that draft guidance. So in some cases, some of the guidance that we're seeing that has just come out recently is in final form. They've already gone through the process of putting it out in draft and getting feedback and modifying that guidance. And in one case, we have a draft guidance that is open for comment and with the intent that they would finalize it at a later date based on that feedback. So we're talking about a process that sounds like but is not the notice and comment process from the Administrative Procedure Act. Is the guidance that results from this process binding the way that regulations would be, or or is it really just interpretive? It really is just interpretive guidance. So it is a similar process to rulemaking, like you suggest, but this is non-binding guidance. And FDA particularly states that in their guidance documents. They say that the goal of the guidance is to help folks understand how the FDA is thinking about particular issues, but it is not binding on the agency. What's interesting about your question, though, is that you asked originally about the changes in the 21st Century Cures Act, the changes to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And the reason that Congress put forward those changes was to formalize some of the policy positions that FDA had taken in guidance, where the industry was uncomfortable that it was only a guidance document, not necessarily binding. So Congress actually went back and formalized that guidance in statute to change FDA's authority to make sure that it was binding on the agency. The guidance that's out there on software and apps, what's the, is there a, a sort of a unifying theme for what the FDA is trying to do with these guidance documents? I think there is. There are particular kinds of technology that are now carved out, as we talked about in the Cures Act, and the agency is explaining which types of technology fit within that carve out. So here are the things we're not going to regulate at all because they're outside of our authority. The FDA is also identifying areas where there are technologies that are low risk and for which the agency will exercise enforcement discretion. What that means is that, yes, it's regulated by the FDA, but the FDA isn't going to require a company to come in for pre-market approval. They're not going to require reporting of adverse events, things like that. So they're going to exercise enforcement discretion, which means they're not going to be enforcing the regulations in that area for now. And based on a finding that it's a low-risk area and therefore not necessarily worth the resources of the agency or the players in the industry. Exactly. So what we're seeing is that the FDA is trying to figure out which are the things that they should be spending their time and energy focused on because there's some risk to patients if there's a problem with that software. Can you give us an example of something the FDA might identify as being low-risk? So where there's low-risk, like some kind of administrative software or where somebody, there's a technology that a patient might use just to track their nutrition or their fitness or something like that, that they are using to help maintain their health, the FDA might say, well, that's low risk. And therefore, we are going to exercise enforcement discretion, even though it is something that is within our jurisdiction. So getting into some detail on the content of the guidance that we've seen so far, the final guidance, where do those go and what do they tell us? Sure. So there are four final guidance documents that the FDA has released on digital health software products. I'll discuss two of the most interesting ones, the policy for device software functions and mobile medical applications, and general wellness, the policy for low-risk devices. 
The first is policy for device software functions and mobile medical applications. Under this guidance, the FDA states its intent to apply its regulatory oversight to only those software functions that are medical devices. So those might include software functions that are an extension of one or more medical devices that connect to a device for purposes of controlling it, software functions that transform the mobile platform into a regulated medical device through attachments, display screens, or sensors, or software functions that become a regulated medical device by performing patient-specific analysis. So some examples of those software functions include mobile apps that control the delivery of insulin on an insulin pump by transmitting control signals to the pumps, or an attachment that could be a blood glucose strip reader on a mobile platform, or software functions that can use patient-specific parameters to calculate dosage or create a dosage plan. So it sounds like in the first guidance document, the FDA is making clear that it's going to regulate software that's functioning as an extension of something that's already a medical device that would already be under the FDA's authority. Is that right? Right, exactly. So as you mentioned, those devices are pretty close to what you might think traditionally are medical devices, but the FDA is also released where it will exercise discretion. So like Jody mentioned earlier, devices that may help patients self-manage their disease or conditions without any specific treatment or treatment suggestions, and software functions that also automate simple tasks for healthcare providers. So that was the first policy on software device functions. Can you tell me a little bit about the second policy on low-risk devices? So the second guidance that the FDA has released is one on general wellness policy for low-risk devices. This guidance deals with products that meet the following two factors, are intended only for general wellness use, and present a low risk to the safety of users and other persons. So this would be like, these would be the apps that I'm familiar with, or fitness apps, they're things that are tracking a jog, or they're tracking heart rate or sleep patterns, or that kind of thing, where it's a general health as opposed to something specifically interacting with a medical device. Yes, exactly. So this product would be something that encourages people to maintain a general state of health or healthy activity, and there's no real reference to a particular disease. Those products might be something that assists you with weight management, physical fitness, stress management, or other things like that. There also may be products that do reference a disease and may help you to make healthy lifestyle choices to maintain or reduce the risk of the disease from occurring. So those two guidance documents that you describe, and then there are two others that I gather are much more technical, are sort of the body of FDA guidance that we're building on. And now there's, in addition, a new draft guidance document that the FDA has, I think, solicited comments on. Can we talk a little bit about the content there? So the draft guidance is on clinical decision support. And the FDA is requesting comment on this updated guidance document which the comments are due in December of this year. What's really interesting about this guidance and the fact that it is an update on draft that was released a couple years back is that there's a question about when does software that is aiding in clinical decision-making rise to the level of being a device and when does it rise to a level of being risky enough that the FDA wants to oversee that device. So there's sort of two cuts here. Is it something that is subject to FDA authority? And then secondly, if it is, is it something for which the FDA wants to regulate in its traditional sense or exercise enforcement discretion because they're not really concerned about the safety aspects of that particular technology? 
It connects back to the carve-out in the 21st Century Cures Act. So under the 21st Century Cures Act, certain software is carved out from FDA's jurisdiction. But one of the key factors in whether or not the software is carved out from FDA's authority is whether or not the user can independently review the basis for the recommendations that are coming out of the software. So if, for instance, you have a clinical decision support tool that is just taking practice guidelines and making it easier for a provider to know that they're supposed to conduct a particular test or ask a certain question of the patient or provide a certain kind of treatment, and it's something they could look up in their practice guidelines on paper before, in that case, the user can independently verify the recommendation that's coming out because it's just taking something that they were already using and making it easier and more efficient in electronic form. So the statutory carve-out for certain kinds of software as a medical device includes software that's clinical decision support. And there are two key factors that I think are important here. One is that it's intended for the purpose of supporting or providing a recommendation to a healthcare professional about prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of a disease or condition. And second, that there is an opportunity for the user to independently review the basis of such recommendation. And the user we're talking about here, by contrast to the apps on my own phone, the user here is a licensed professional, right? So it's a clinical decision that's being made, and the user is not the patient, but the professional or the paraprofessional who is making a clinical decision. Is that generally well, right? It's a really interesting point you're making because the carve out in the statute focuses on healthcare professionals and clinical decision support. But FDA also talks about patient decision support, clinical decision support that is targeted toward an individual consumer or patient. And the patient decision support tools are not carved out of the definition of device. So even if the user could independently verify the recommendation that is coming out of that technology, it's within FDA's authority to regulate that technology. So where it's directed at the healthcare provider and there's an opportunity for independent verification, it will be carved out of the definition of device and outside of FDA's authority. But in the direct-to-consumer applications, it is still within FDA's authority. What FDA did to address this issue that Congress didn't consider is to say, well, in the case where the user, the patient, can independently verify the recommendation, even though it's within FDA's authority, we're going to exercise enforcement discretion because we think that's low risk. So despite the fact that there is a statutory distinction between technology directed to providers versus technology provided to patients, it seems like the FDA has minimized that distinction by exercising its enforcement discretion. That's correct. The end result is similar, where a device that is simply taking information that you could have identified or used to make a recommendation before is put in electronic form, FDA is not going to be overseeing that. But in the case of the healthcare provider, they can't. And in the case of the patient, they won't. So let's say we're in a scenario where the FDA does have authority to regulate. Are there other factors that FDA would take into consideration in determining whether to regulate? Yes. So this is what is different about the draft guidance that we've just seen compared to the prior draft guidance on clinical decision support. The FDA has put forward a risk framework 
for determining whether or not they're going to exercise their normal enforcement and oversight of a particular clinical decision support software, or whether or not they're going to exercise enforcement discretion. And they are relying on the framework from the International Medical Device Regulators Forum to set a risk-based policy for making that determination. And what are the considerations from the framework that was put forth by the International Medical Device Regulators Forum? If the clinical decision support functionality is in the category of critical or serious, then FDA will have an oversight focus with respect to that software. If, in fact, the software is considered non-serious, then the FDA will exercise enforcement discretion with respect to that software which basically means that they will not require the manufacturer to have to go through the regulatory approval process with respect to that software. So that's the part of the calculus where the FDA would be saying, this is technically possible to regulate, but because it is low risk, it would not be worth our resources or yours for us to regulate the area. That's correct. And this has been a theme that we've seen by FDA, where they're looking at identifying areas where innovation will help support improvements in healthcare, and where the extra effort for FDA oversight and approval might slow down that innovation and not have a significant public health impact. So they're making a calculation that innovation in healthcare is good if, in fact, the product that's within our jurisdiction is low risk, but can help providers or patients. We want to encourage the development and availability of that technology. And where there is technology that's innovative, also very helpful in the healthcare space, but where there is some safety risk, then we're going to take a step back and go through our regular process for regulating that software. As we said, this is a draft guidance document from the FDA, which means that they're interested in soliciting comments on it. When are those comments due on this guidance document? So the FDA is requesting comment on this updated guidance by December 26, 2019. And we're working with clients to help them work through how this guidance will impact the technologies that they have. So the due date of the guidance is quite an interesting one, December 26. I'm sure that didn't go unnoticed by folks. When I worked at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, also nicknamed ONC, we would often put out rules right before Christmas time, and we were dubbed the Office of No Christmas. So it seems like the FDA is trying to compete for that title. What we're trying to do is help folks to draft comments in advance so that you can enjoy your holidays. Nice. Let's leave it there. Thank you both for joining us. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Mm-hmm.